You may open your Bibles to Psalm 84. For those listening to a tape or watching a video, I would recommend that you stop it and go read Psalm 122 and see the grace and character trait that ought to be evident in your life from the first verse where it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord and read that psalm and see that they shall prosper that love thee, which is a whole lot more than just attending thee or singing in thee, but actually loving the house of God and his worship. It's a sin and it's profitless as all sins are, to think about others during a sermon. Apply everything you hear to yourself. That's where it counts. You waste your time, you waste the Spirit of God, you waste the Word of God when you think about others because you're not helping them apply it to themselves by you thinking about them. They can't hear you thinking about them. Think about yourself and take the Word of God to your own hearts. All men are not created equal. Never have been, never will be. And it's true in the house of God. No two church members are alike. All men do not obey the gospel equally. Paul and Demas were once members of the same church. Or associated with the same churches. Paul's the apostle that we love. Because he finished his course, he fought a good fight, and he kept the faith. Demas we despise. Because he forsook our brother Paul while he was in Rome for the foolish reason of having loved this present world. Paul had taught him about the world to come. Paul had likely ordained him to preach the world to come. But he loved this present world. What a waste of a life. An evil heart of unbelief is in your heart. It's your flesh. It's your old man. An evil heart of unbelief is in your family. An evil heart of unbelief is in this church, and it's in every church. What is an evil heart of unbelief? It's one that gets so in love with the world and distracted and diverted by the little cares of its life that it will depart from the living God. Every one of you and I am able to depart from the living God if we do not keep our vigilance up to be glad when we come into the house of the Lord. If you do not practice the private devotional Needs of your soul that I preached last Sunday about reading your Bible every day, studiously, meditatively, to seek God there. Your soul will dry up, the world will entice it, and you will slip away. It's no one's fault but your own. God hasn't changed. We still believe the same things. You've changed. And we're all capable of doing that. So... The Apostle said in Hebrews chapter 3, let us exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. We're all able to do that. Sin is deceitful. You can't figure sin out. You can't say, I'm going to keep this little sin over here in its place and it's not going to affect the rest of my life. Impossible. It'll deceive you. It lies to you. You think you can do that, but you've already lost the cause. Sin is never content with a little compartment in your life. Sin wants to take all of your life. It will take you until you depart from the living God. It's happened many times before. It's happened in both Testaments. And we in this church have seen it before. And we shall see it in the future. We're always going to see it. Sin deceives us. We think we can get away with a little sin that it won't have an effect. It deceives us. It does have an effect. And then it hardens us. Lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens our conscience. It hardens our heart. So that we're no longer as sensitive, as receptive to the Word of God and to the things of God. It changes us. 
on the inside. Sin is terrible. Psalm 84. Verse 1. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! Exclamation point. Is there an exclamation point in your soul? Amiable, pleasant, lovely, charming, delightful, wonderful. How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! How wonderful are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! How delightful are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! Exclamation point. Do you have one in your heart? That the tabernacles of the Lord of hosts are amiable to you. This is the psalmist. Let me say again. These words are not for the choir to sing. These words are not for us to memorize as a prime responsibility. These words are to teach us something. And you need to ask yourself, is this verse true of me? Do you have an exclamation point in your soul? How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts? Listen to him explain himself. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Stop and think on these words, is what Selah means. Listen to David. There's a reason God loved David. There's a reason God blessed David. There's a reason that the Lord Jesus Christ is called the son of David. There's a reason God forgave David so many heinous sins. Because David loved the worship of God in the house of God like very few others. Is verse 2 true of you? My soul longeth. David wants to make the point clearer. Yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. David is fleeing from Absalom. He's far off from the house of God. You can read chapters about it. This is not when he was fleeing from Saul, because there wasn't worship taking place in Jerusalem then. This is when he's fleeing from Absalom. And he's far away. He's away from the house of God, and he wants to be back there. And he knows that there are some that can still go and worship there. And he wants to be with them. His soul was longing for it. He was fainting for it. His heart and his flesh were crying out for it. We've got his soul, his heart, and his flesh in verse 2. That's that's about all you've got, isn't it? Your soul, your heart, and your flesh. But it's all longing to be in the worship of God. Is that true of yours? That's the point of this first assembly. Is it true of yours? These words are to set a standard for us that if we fall short, we need to confess our sins and clear up some things in our lives so that this is true of us. This is the lesson. It's not to hear words. It's not just to understand the sense of these words. It's to apply them in a way that we change our lives so that the house of God is important to us. That's what these words are in the Bible for. They're not to sing, they're not to quote, they're not to read in unison, they are to obey. We want to pattern ourselves after this psalmist. That's why God picked this psalmist for us. He was a delightful man, he was a man after God's own heart, and we want to be like that. David remembers with fondness in verse 3, that even the birds have been able to make nests around the altar of God. They were closer than he was. And he blessed the birds. He blessed the sparrows and the swallows who were able to get close to the house of God, and he was unable to. He said in verse 4, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. The pleasure of being in the house of God and continuing the worship of God. That's what we want. Now listen to him describe those men of Israel getting up three times a year, leaving their families and homes and businesses and traveling to Jerusalem to worship. 
Verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Now, wait a minute. We've got a singular pronoun. We've got a plural pronoun. We've got one man and we've got them. But we've got one man with the ways of those that love to worship God in his heart. We've just had the them mentioned in verse 4. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. And in verse 6 and 7, they go from strength to strength. Those that love the worship of God. Blessed is the man that is like them. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. He gets the strength every year. Listen. Four hours out of 168 here in the house of the Lord on Sunday morning. They had to leave their families, their villages, and travel, in some cases, hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem to worship there three times a year. But blessed are they, verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. They would find their strength in God and they would do it. God would take care of their needs and get them there, in whose heart are the ways of them. They had in their heart the way of those that love the worship of God, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. Baca was a dry place and a difficult place to get through on the way to Jerusalem, but for them they made it a well because the Lord was with them and He gave them the strength. A little bit of adversity and difficulty did not slow them down at all because the house of the Lord was worth it. The rain also filleth the pools. God would supply them. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. They didn't miss the assemblies. It is so easy to tell where a man's heart is. You know I've made fun of men that say these words before, but I want to do it again. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. We absolutely know your heart. You can't hide your heart from us. If you don't love being in the house of God, you don't love God. It's easy to see. We're not deceived. You can't deceive us. Because a man who loves God is going to show it. It's evident. He wants to be in the house of God every time the doors are open. Not only does he show up, he loves being there. The joy on his countenance. The volume of his singing. The pleasure of greeting his brethren. The timeliness with which he gets here. The preparation he puts in before he gets here. The desire to volunteer to participate. He stays afterward. He loves to be in the house of God. He doesn't want it to end. Those are the character traits of somebody who loves God. But then there are sitters. They come in late. They haven't prepared. They dump themselves down. They warm a piece of foam rubber. And they leave. They haven't done a thing. It doesn't mean a thing to God. Haven't you ever read the Old Testament? How many times the God of Israel said He didn't care about all the burnt offerings they offered or all the sacrifices they made. He wanted their hearts and their souls. He wanted their lives. And He wants ours. Look at these men in verses 5 through 7. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. And then in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. They were committed to the corporate, congregational, public worship of God, and they would be there. I'm not preaching to you, Brother Leon, any more than anyone else, and you know that. Well, we should all feel it, but you shouldn't feel it any more than anyone else. You were called away for a few weeks, and by the grace of God, you're going to be back here shortly. We understand that. You know, when they got called away in the, in the New Testament times and had to travel across the Mediterranean, it wasn't as easy as jumping on a flight from St. Louis to GSP. They were gone for a long time. When Paul went from Caesarea to Rome in Acts chapter 27 and 28, it, t- it took the good part of a year. We have things that call us away from the assemblies, but we can tell when you're away from the assembly because... There's an act of God in your life that you can't avoid, and when there's an act of you in your life that you could avoid. The difference is always visible. We know that. You can't hide that from us. Because when you're here, it's going to show such a difference, and you're going to grieve over it so much, you're going to apologize to the church for missing. You know, We all know the difference of members. God's never created men equal. There's never been equal saints. Some love the Lord more than others. But do you know what the goal is? We're to provoke each other to emulation so that we all love the Lord more. The Bible says that. You know, emulation means competition, envy, 
Wanting to excel another person in something. Do you know that emulation is good in one respect? Wanting to excel each other in spiritual gifts and in the love of God. Paul said, covet earnestly the best gifts. You know, you can covet something. And that is to be involved as possible in your church and serve as much as possible and be here to, to, to worship God. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Another stop, another pause for us to reflect on what David has just said in verses 5 through 8. He knows every other man in Israel can go up to Jerusalem and worship, but he cannot. He says, they're all going to appear there, but I cannot. O Lord God of hosts, hear me. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. You've made me your king, but I'm far off from Jerusalem. Now get ready and savor the words, if your heart is right. If your heart isn't right, you can make it right in a second. Lord, I'm a miserable wretch. I have not kept you first in my life. I have let the world seduce me and attract me and distract me and divert me. I've let a few trials and afflictions trouble me. Forgive me, O God of heaven, for that. And let me delight and love thy presence and thy church as I ought to. Let me love thy word as I ought to. Forgive me, O Lord. David said, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is, this is the psalm. This is Psalm 84. He's worked his way up to it. He's worked his way up to that tenth verse. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. He doesn't, he doesn't qualify or modify or explain the thousand days because he doesn't need to. Wherever you would like to spend a day... Multiply it by a thousand, and David said, I'd rather be a day in your house than a thousand days anywhere else. Anywhere else. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. A day in the house of God. A day in the place where God was worshipped. A day where the king of Israel could stand in the court from the tribe of Judah and watch the men from the tribe of Levi offer up sacrifices and prayers to the God of heaven. That thrilled him more than a thousand days anywhere else. And he was king of Israel. In the second half of that verse, he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. It has nothing to do with preeminence in the church. It has nothing to do with a position or honor or esteem. We're all brethren. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And the tense he's describing here, the ellipsis and the implication is obvious. The, the rich, prosperous, successful tents of wickedness. No matter how successful these tents might be, I want to be in the house of my God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. He, now, this is the, now, if a doorkeeper were writing this, we'd understand why he was writing it. Because that's all he'd ever been, was a doorkeeper. But we've got the king of Israel writing it. When the king of Israel says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, that's meaningful. That's weighty. And that's why God chose certain writers to write certain things. And when David said that, it should move us. That we just want to be in the house of the Lord. and We don't care what role we have. We just want to be with the Lord and the Lord's people rather than the tents of wickedness. No matter how comfortable, luxurious, prosperous, and popular they might be. Is that your heart? Today's message. Where is your tent? Where is your tent? David said, I do not want the tents of wickedness. I don't care how luxurious, how comfortable, how pleasant, how entertaining, how rich they are in the world's sight. I want the house of God. I don't care if I'm a doorkeeper there. I will give up and resign my post in the tents of wickedness to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'll give up a thousand days over there. If I can have a day over here because it's far better. Is that your heart? Is that your life? We want it to be all of our lives together. We want to be like David. This is not just to read and to sing. This is to teach us. This is the standard that God is looking for. He doesn't accept a standard less than this. He'll have to save you by His grace if you're less than this. If you're showing this level of love for the Lord... 
It's proof that he saved you by his grace. But if you've got less than this, prove to us that you're even saved. Because if you don't love the Lord as the chief love of your life, show us the work of grace in your heart. Because the God of heaven changes men's hearts. What a verse. For a day in thy courts, if David could just stand there and watch the pageant, forget, you know, it's the Old Testament, watch the pageantry. Just to stand there in the courts. He didn't get to go inside. He had to stand and watch. The king of Israel did not mind because he was in the presence of God. And he'd love the role of a doorkeeper than the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. There's a reason why God, why David loved the Lord, because the Lord was a son to him. That means he prospered him in everything he did. He shined on him with blessing, and he was a shield. He protected him from all harm. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And what is walking uprightly here? It is loving the house of God. It is loving the house of God. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. David loved the Lord. There's his psalm. There's Psalm 84. A fool will say, I'm here, ain't I? Do those words, I'm here, ain't I, fulfill Psalm 122 and Psalm 84? They don't even come close. They shall prosper that love thee. I was glad when they said unto me, I'd rather be here than a thousand days anywhere else because a day here is better. That's the, that's the attitude that counts with God. And that's the attitude we want to have. He longed, he fainted, and he cried to be in the house of the Lord. Do you long and faint and cry? You say, no, I don't. Then confess it because it's a sin and it's your fault and no one else's. No, I don't. How do I get that? Get down on your knees and spend precious time with the Lord in His Word. Read these psalms over and over and ask Him to fill you with that desire by the power of His Holy Spirit. He'll do it. Will He do it, sister? He'll do it. Pray for it. The Lord Jesus Christ, when He gave the lesson in Luke chapter 11, and He said... You earthly fathers, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Your heavenly father knows how to give better gifts than you do because you're sinners and he's perfect. How much more? He he said, what what son asks his father a piece of bread and the father gives him a stone? What son asks his father for an egg and the father gives him a scorpion? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more does God know how to give good gifts to his children? No, that's not what he said. He said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? You're lacking in this? Confess it as a sin because that's what it is. Get into the Word of God. Get the the tents of wickedness out of your life. You say, I'm not wicked. I don't do drugs. Oh, forget it. You don't understand anything. Whoever said drugs were wicked? Only our nation has made them wicked. You know what real wickedness is? Let me tell you. Being a friend of the world. If you're a friend of the world, you are an adulterer and an adulteress, and you are the enemy of God. Those are the tents of wickedness. Just being a friend with the world and wanting to do their things and getting delight out of their things and having fun out there instead of the house of God. A second love or a lukewarm approach to the church of God is not good enough. Jesus said he'll spew you out of his mouth. If you ever feel like you're being spewed out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his blessings are not in your life like in others' lives, the first thing you should do is check your love of God. Do you love the Lord like you should? Do you love his house like you should? I hear a fool saying, well, I ain't wicked. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is the love of God consuming and controlling your life? What's the second commandment? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That is so easy to read. You know, 
There are people that say, well, I'm just not an outgoing person. I'm just not very social. Get over it. It's a sin. The second commandment is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You already love yourself, so just apply some of that to the rest of us. Serve, give, do for others. Speak, help, ask, inquire, encourage others. What is wickedness? Well, if we take the first two commandments of God and we break the first two commandments, can we call ourselves wicked? Is that fair to say that that is wicked? See, everyone wants to think about drugs. We have such a sick nation. Let the people that want to take drugs take them. Help them take some more. Buy it for them. I don't really mean that. But I'm close. I just want to get you over. Forget drugs. Do you know what people think of as wickedness? Serial killers. Drugs. You know, and stuff like that. Kill the president. What does the Bible say? Being a friend of the world. I want to go right back to it again. Being a friend of the world is wickedness. Is an adulterer, an adulteress. what, What stronger language could God have used to describe the tense of wickedness than to say in James 4, 4, if you're a friend of the world, you are my enemy... And you are an adulterer and adulteress. What, what words could he have used better than that? Enemy, adulterer, and adulteress. That's how he measures being a friend of the world. So, if you're a friend of the world, then you like the tense of wickedness. And you, we all need to ask ourselves, do I love the tense, are there tents of wickedness out there, or do I love the house of God? Where is your tent? Right. Where is the tent that you love? I hear a fool say, But I can assemble with those saints. No, you can't. And please God. Here's why. There are reasons you joined this church. There are reasons you joined this church. You joined this church for the doctrine, for its practice, for God's providence in bringing it to you, and for the people in it. And until there is overwhelming evidence that you can show from the Word of God, which will only take care of you, then you owe The covenant that you made to these people. Because God, by His providence, brought you to this group of people, to this doctrine and this practice, and you confess before all of us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ under oath that this was going to be your church and you were committed to it. We are a body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not some little social club like all the other churches where you can float in, float out, and do whatever you want, and no one's going to hold you accountable. You're not held accountable when you join. You're not held accountable when you leave. Whenever you want to leave, you just walk out and you don't come back. They don't care. They don't even know you were a member. You affirmed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that this was your church by the grace of God. If you can show us something with overwhelming evidence from the Word of God, we'll change. If you can show us infant sprinkling in the Bible with overwhelming evidence, when Christina's little girls get here, we'll sprinkle them. But it's going to have to be some overwhelming evidence from the Bible. Because the Bible is overwhelmingly plain in what it says about baptism. That infant sprinklers are heretics. They're daughters of the mother church in Rome. You confess God's providence in connecting you here. It creates a bond. The Lord adds to the church daily such as should be saved. The Lord places members in the body. We're a weird group of people. Every one of us is different. We're strange. But you know, you put all those different snowflakes together and it makes a ball. And the Lord can throw it and do something with it. That's a ter- See, I'm not good at illustrations. We're all different. And the Lord put us together into a body. You cannot willy-nilly decide that you're going to try some other doctrine, some other practice, some other people. You've made a commitment here. It's a holy commitment. It's a New Testament commitment. You made it in the name of the Lord. You promised to assemble with us, forgive us, serve us, help us, love us, communicate with us, submit to one another. Support the church. You don't just walk out the door like you do a social club like every other church. We don't release members. Yeah, we're going to release you to go try the Church of Mormon for six months. We're going to release you to go try Rome again. Frank, do you want to go back to Rome for six months? Thank you, brother. You don't release somebody that's going out and trying some other doctrine, some other people, forsaking their covenant, being a covenant breaker. 
you know what they're guilty of? They're guilty of covenant breaking. They're guilty of forsaking the assembly. They're guilty of heresy. We can't just release people to those kind of sins. We exclude them because they're sinners. And they're public sinners. Our church is important. This is the house of God. This is the house of God God brought us to. You say, I wish it was better. I'm glad to hear you say that. I was hoping you'd say that. Make it better. You know, there's only one kind of person that ever says that. This is an absolute rule. The people that do nothing. They are the only ones that ever say that. The people that do everything and make a church what it is are always happy and content with that church. Always. This rule is never violated. Because a person that gives and has their heart right and is a servant of the church, their heart is so right, they're happy with the church. They can always get something out of it. Because no church is perfect. It's the preparation of the hearted man that makes all the difference. You know, that's, that's really what I was trying to preach recently about marriage and what, I, what we said yesterday very briefly. The closer you are to the Lord and your heart is prepared, guess what? Your spouse is better. The closer you are to the Lord, the church is better. As you get away from the Lord, you're deceived through the deceitfulness of sin and your heart is hardened. Well, since you said that, I wish the church was better. Make it better. Show us how much you want it to be better. Because a church is great by that which every joint supplies and by every part contributing. That's how it gets compacted together to be a better church. If the Bible allows us to release you to go try an Arminian church, if, 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 please hear me, if the Bible allows you to go try an Arminian church, then it also allows you to go become a Mormon. Because if you blot out and white out all the verses in the Bible about doctrine in order to go worship in an Arminian church where they have an entirely different gospel and worship a different Jesus by a different spirit, where they believe in decisional regeneration and so the power of the Holy Ghost in regenerating people, where they believe that you put your name in the book of life by your will instead of the will of God, if you go to worship in a church where Jesus is either in a manger or on a crucifix or standing knocking at a door like a long-haired hippie, you're worshiping another Jesus. And if you don't have verses to keep you from doing that, you don't have verses to keep you from being a Mormon. It's so so simple. It's another Jesus. Paul said to the Corinthians, I fear that you're going to worship another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit. There are such things. If the Bible allows us to release you to become a Presbyterian, then it allows you to join the snake-handling Pentecostals. Because there's no difference. They're both heretics. If the Lord shows us we're in heresy on some point, we'll repent and change. We've done it before. We'll do it again. Lord, show us. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13 from Psalm 84. We were supposed to see that David had a unique, special affection for the house of God. His soul longed for it, fainted for it. His flesh cried for it. He considered a day there better than a thousand anywhere else. And he considered the house of God far better than the tents of wickedness. He'd rather be a doorkeeper there. We want to remember those things because the question is, where is your tent? Where is your tent? If you play with the world, if you even get close to it, it will entice you. The world is very enticing and it will invite you in. Delilah will invite you back. Sodom will invite you in. And until pretty soon you're deceived into a hardened heart. You're not as sensitive to the Word of God. You're not as sensitive to doctrine. You forget your, co- your covenant promises that you've made with us. You forget your commitment here. You're not forgiving of us. You're, because your heart's hardened. All of this happens by a natural... Pro- na- did you hear me? By a natural process of the flesh and by a spiritual enabler called the devil. Because you play around with sin. Where is your tent? Hopefully you read Genesis 19 last night. If you didn't read Genesis 19 last night, then you're one of the ones that need to be paying particular attention to what I'm saying this morning because you didn't prepare. Genesis 19 is the list of all the bad things that happened a lot. Can you you remember some of those bad things with me? Did he lose his family? Did he lose his job? Did he lose his house? Did he lose his assets? Bank accounts? Everything. 
Did he lose them all? Did he lose his wife? Did he lose his girls? Did he lose his son-in-laws? Did he lose his daughters for all practical purposes? Did he end up, did he end up changing from the friend of the friend of God to the father of the enemies of the people of God? That is how bad sin is. When the Bible says sin is able to harden you through its deceitfulness that you would depart from the living God, the friend of the friend of God became the father of the enemies of the people of God. Lot's descendants killed Israelites, the Ammonites and the Moabites. What was Lot's mistake? Genesis 13, 12. Genesis 13, 12. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Children. To pitch a tent means to set it up. I was asked this last night at devotions by a mother for her children. To pitch a tent means to set it up. So Lot, you didn't buy a house in a subdivision back then. You set up a tent to live in. And Lot set up his tent to live in toward the city of Sodom. You know, he just made a small change in his life. He just started watching a little bit more television. He just started spending a little bit more time with men of the world. He just started spending a little bit more time with Christians called Presbyterians or worshipers of other Jesuses. Just a little bit. He knew Abraham wouldn't like it if he went all the way into Sodom. He didn't feel good about that. I've got a conscience problem about going into Sodom. So he pitched his tent toward it. How long did he have that conscience problem? Not long. Because pretty soon he sold that house in the subdivision outside Sodom and he moved into the city of Sodom. Pretty soon he got into Sodom and saw its prosperity and it was a prosperous city. Because it was in the well-watered plains of the Jordan Valley. He got in there and he wanted to make, make himself a career. He sat in, a, in the gate of that city on the city council. He was an elder of that city. The man who had a conscience problem with moving in, the man who just pitched his tent toward it, he just moved into a subdivision toward it, ended up in it, ended up joining city council, ended up marrying his daughters to their sons. While Abraham is getting Rebecca for Isaac, Lot is marrying his daughters off to the men of Sodom. What happened to him? How did it happen? It's called incremental compromise. I've preached it to you many, many, many years ago. Sin takes you by inches. The devil does not come up to you and say, would you worship me in the backyard this tonight at midnight? It's a full moon, and I want you to go buy a goat from a farmer, and I want you to slay it in the backyard tonight and worship a goat head. That's not how the devil works. The devil works by Christians approaching you to worship another Jesus. You start reading another Bible version. You listen to country western music in your vehicle while you drive to work. You watch television, and it steals your heart and your soul. So you're not sensitive to Bible doctrine. You do not love the God of the Bible. You get irritated about us. You complain about us because your heart is hardened. It's not, we haven't changed. You've changed. Right, right. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Does the world ever throw a pitch at us to pitch our tents toward Sodom? It's doing it all the time, isn't it? All the time. Do, do, your, do the Christians that you meet in life want you to pitch your tent toward them? Oh, come on. What's the difference? We all love Jesus. But see, they've never read their Bible, so they don't know that there's another Jesus. Or they wouldn't make such a stupid statement. Do you know the Lord doesn't care whether you love him in the, in the frivolous, ridiculous words of that sentence? Do you know what the Lord says about loving him? If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen. Go read John 14 and see how many times he says that loving me is keeping my commandments. Don't tell me you love me. Keep my commandments and show me. Don't let somebody tell you 
Well, can't we all just love Jesus and overlook these doctrinal differences? No. Jesus wouldn't. Did Jesus do that? Did Jesus tell the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians, the priests, the Levites? Did he tell all them, let's agree to disagree on a few things? Or did he tell them they were all flat out wrong? He crushed them. He sliced them with a two-edged sword of his mouth. Did the Apostle Paul tell the Galatians, as long as you keep loving Jesus, I don't care that you've added a few things to your confession of faith. What did they added? Circumcision and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Sounds about like a decisional regenerationist. You've got to invite Jesus into your heart in order to be saved. Listen, God better accept us in His heart through the beloved sacrifice of His Son for us to be saved. Amen. That's the crucial point. Amen. That's, what, that's the issue. Look what happened to Lot. A total destruction of his life. All aspects of it. From top to bottom. From the inside out of his children. Look at the depraved, perverse spirits and hearts of his own children. His own wife. She couldn't believe, she couldn't listen to the angel. She turned around and became a pillar of salt. He had corrupted his whole family. And how did it all start? He bought a television. He took on a friend. He started reading certain magazines, books. He started thinking a certain way. He started missing a service once in a while. Take, take whatever step you want that's the first step towards Sodom. It's always an incremental step. It's always small. But sin is deceitful and it will not be content with one. Because hell is never full. Sin is never satisfied. It wants more of your life. The evil is not in the television. The evil is in the programming and the viewer. You should all know that. But it is a technical sin. It is a techno sin of our generation. Because it leads so many to sin. Look at the consequences. Could he have ever seen them? No rich man ever lost everything so quickly. No powerful man ever lost so much position so fully. No family man ever lost his family in such a disgraceful way so quickly. No friend of the kingdom of God ever created so many enemies of the kingdom of God than Lot. And he is setting the Bible as an example for all of us of what happens when we pitch our tent towards Sodom. How do you pitch your tent towards Sodom? It's with friends. It's with conversation that is less than praising God. We should, we should be filled with praising God and serving Scripture and loving our church and serving it and loving the brethren. It's a full-time job. Right. It's a full-time job for you to be a good Christian with the people you've got right here. True. To be a good Christian brother. Where is your tent? David said, I don't want the tents of wickedness. I want a tent in the courts of the house of my God. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom and it ruined him. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts 2. Excuse me, Acts chapter 2. There are Abrahams and there are Lots. Do we know that Lot is in heaven? Because the Bible tells us. If all we had was Genesis 19, would we know that Lot was in heaven? No. Are there going to be men that think they belong in heaven, that the Lord's going to tell them they don't get into heaven? Lot does not excuse sin on any one of our parts because we don't know that we're Lot. You may tell me that Samson is in Hebrews chapter 11. But tell me that you've ever judged Israel faithfully for 20 years during that process. You can't, you can't lay claim to Samson at all. We make our calling and election sure by loving the house of God and loving God, loving the people of God. And practicing those spiritual traits that characterize his people. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 tells us, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This is the process of gospel conversion. This, this is the description of a changed life by the grace of God through preaching of the Word of God. They gladly received His Word. They were baptized. And they joined that assembly. 3,000 of them did. 
And look at what it says, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They continued. They didn't start and then quit. They didn't start and then changed. They continued. And they didn't just continue barely. They continued steadfastly. They didn't continue waveringly. They continued steadfastly. Steadfastly means to be standing still in one place, fastened there, and not moving. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. What we want from those last couple of verses is they continued daily. Their commitment was a daily commitment with the other saints. With one accord in the temple of God, worshiping him under the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ. They broke their bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They had one heart. It was full of gladness. And they did it with one another, praising God. They believed, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And so here's thousands of converted Jews standing over in a court in the house of God in Israel where animal sacrifices are going up and they're preaching and hearing about Jesus Christ. They have pitched their tent toward the Jerusalem, which is above. Instead of pitching their tent toward the altars of the Old Testament, that was a huge sacrifice. That was a huge change for them. They went and did it in the same place. There's two forms of worship going up side by side during the days of Reformation until the Lord wiped that temple off the face of the earth, tore apart one stone from another, and left only New Testament worship. They pitched their tent toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And how'd they do it? They did it daily. They did it from house to house. They did it with gladness. They did it praising God. They did it continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship. Look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Let's look at one more example of pitching a tent. This particular man lived in all sorts of tents. But the the description of his change is precious. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. When he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. This is pitching your tent in a different place. By faith he did it. Moses, when he got old enough to make decisions on his own, when he came to years and he was 40 years old, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What a privileged position. He quit a job and he ended relationships and took up new ones. That is boldness. Choosing, rather, here's the choice he had to make, to suffer affliction with the people of God. He chose to suffer, and he chose the lowly people of God. Do you know what their jobs were at this time in Egypt? Slave help to build the pyramids and the tombs of the kings of Egypt. Slaves. He refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter any longer. He wanted to be aligned with slaves. He gave up the riches, the treasures in Egypt for suffering with Christ. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He said affliction is better than pleasure. The people of God are better than Egypt. The riches of Christ are better than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. What does that mean? He understood that God 
would pay him back. He understood that God would reward him, that God would take care of him. And did God ever take care? Did God take care of him in this world? Uh Uh-huh. Did God take care of him in the next world? Yes. Did he stand in the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he looked to as one of the great heroes of the church of the Old Testament? He had respect to the recompense of the reward. And he's in the hall of faith because he made that choice. Where's your tent? Where is your tent? Moses had a tent in Egypt. And for 40 years, he was mighty in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He left it to suffer affliction with the people of God. When he made that choice, the Lord wasn't ready to use him yet. So he had to flee for his life. And then he pitched another tent out in the wilderness where he had a happy domestic situation with a wife and some sons keeping sheep. The Lord said, I don't want you to stay here content. I want to add a little challenge to your life and go lead my slaves out of Egypt into Canaan. He didn't want to go. The Lord helped him make the decision to go, if you're familiar with the history. So he had to pitch a third tent. He couldn't have Egypt. He couldn't have some peace and quiet in the wilderness. He had to go with the people of God and be their leader. And leading those people was no picnic. And he went. And he did it. 120 years long. Then the Lord took him up onto a mountaintop and buried him. Where is your tent? All of you fathers, you have a responsibility to your children. Every single one of them have lurking in their hearts an evil heart of unbelief. You must keep their hearts with all, as much as you possibly can. Remember Solomon? Give me thine heart. Give me thine heart. Come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You have got to put restrictions and restraints. You have got to remind and warn. You've got to love and counsel. You've got to warn and rebuke. You've got to teach and comfort. You've got to listen and correct. Because that evil heart of unbelief is in us. It's in our children. It's in our families. The perilous times are not out there. The perilous times are in our hearts. And they affect us always. You know, some will want to say, is the truth, so, is the truth as narrow and as restrictive as you make it? In the church of Greenville, I would answer that question. It's more restrictive, but we're working toward it. The word of God and the holy standards of the word of God are stricter than what we do, but we're getting there by the grace of God. When somebody wants to say, well, how can so few be right? Well, you don't know how many of us there are. Have you done a survey of the 6.7 billion people that live on earth? Elijah thought he knew how many there were, and he was wrong by over 100%. He thought there was one, and there was really 7,001. How many were in Noah's church? There were eight. How many good church members were there in Noah's church that we know about? One. One. Out of 600,000 Jewish men that left Egypt... How many of them made it to Canaan? Two. Out of the millions of Israel, God only had 7,000 in the days of Elijah. When a great crowd followed Jesus Christ because he filled their bellies with a free meal, and he preached hard doctrine to them, the apostles called it hard doctrine, the crowd disappeared and left. How many did it leave? About 12. What did Jesus say to them? Run after that crowd and tell them that it's not really as bad as they think? Will ye go away also? And they said, to whom shall we go? Peter did it for them. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus called his church a little flock. Jesus said that the majority is always wrong. Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Paul said that there were many belly worshippers in Philippians chapter 3 whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They're belly worshippers. They care more about what's going on in this life 
They eat, they see, they touch. It's sex, it's food, it's drink, it's houses, it's cars, it's business, it's politics, it's stuff. They mind earthly things. Their God is their belly. The belly is put for the whole being of man. They care about all those things instead of the things of the soul and the unseen things of heaven that are far more important. Somebody will say, but I'm not going to depart from the living God. The Bible says, wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. You have no idea how deceitful your heart is, how deceitful sin is, how deceitful your heart is, and how weak you are. You will depart from the living God if you pitch your tent towards Sodom and leave it there. How do you measure a real Christian? A real Christian loves God and shows it by outward action and joy. That, Christ, that Christian has it on his face. He has it in his tongue. He has it in his deeds. He has it in his service. The things of God are always more important to him. When you talk to him, you hear things about God because that is what's meaningful to him. Right. How do you show a Christian by his love for others? Because he's going after other people. He's not hiding. He's not withdrawing. He's not avoiding. He's going after them. He wants to love. He wants to serve. He wants to inquire. He wants to comfort. He wants to help. He doesn't get into his little rut and his little habits. His little life is not as important to him as helping other people in their lives. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. This is nothing new. The love of God and the love of others is the religion of Jesus Christ. If you've kept those two commandments, you've kept them all. That's it. How much do you go after other people and serve them and love them and help them and talk to them? We, the Bible tells us what a real Christian is by those two commandments. Jesus said a real Christian is someone who continues in his word. Then you're a disciple indeed. You'll get out of your church what you put into it. It's true of everything. I remember as a 12-year-old, I don't want to go to Boy Scouts tonight. Jonathan, you'll get out of it what you put into it. Mother, you told me that. And I've learned all my life that you'll get out of it what you put into it. It's attitude. It's your job. It's your marriage. It's your house. It's your church. You'll get out of it what you put into it. You don't think the church is good enough for you? There's only one kind of person that would say that. Then make it better. Show us what a real Christian is like. We'd be, we would love to learn because we want to be better Christians. Every man shall bear his own burden. We can't live for you. You're going to live for yourself. And those are Bible words. Galatians 6, 5. Every man shall bear his own burden. This generation loves to blame others. Daddy abused me 55 years ago. I've just been twisted ever since. You know, nothing like that's taught in the whole Bible. Right. Nothing like that is taught in the whole Bible. You should have forgiven your daddy 54 years ago, and you'd have been a whole lot better the last 54 years. Right. You say, well, it was a terrible thing that daddy did to me. I don't care if it was terrible or not. You have more to forgive him for. God will honor you for it. Right. What have you done by remembering it? You know, our, our society is sick that way. They want to blame everyone else for what's wrong in their lives. That is not the way you get over problems. That is not the way you get great God's grace in your life. Forgive and forget it and go forward in faith. This generation loves to blame others because it's arrogant, it's lazy, it's selfish, and it's self-righteous. So we've got the problem. If we've got the problem, show us how to be a better Christian. But it's never those, the ones that are showing us how to be good Christians in here, they're happy with the church. They want to be here. Lazy souls want it done for them and to them. And they're always the ones that do nothing or next to nothing. You know, there's always a reason for a Joshua and an Achan. They're so different, a Joshua and an Achan. Joshua meditated in the Word of God, and the Lord blessed them greatly. Achan wanted some stuff. Stuff interested him. And so he ended up going down, burned, stoned. The Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest pastor ever. But how many followed him? Just a few. Brethren, you are your brother's keepers. It is your job to rebuke and to warn, to save and to help whenever you can. Because there is an evil heart of unbelief in all of us. And some will give in to the flesh and be weak and be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And it's our job to exhort them, warn them, 
suppress them, to live up to their commitments that they've made to the Lord Jesus Christ by their baptism and by their commitment to us to be a member of this church. If they don't want to, be, if they don't want to do that, then we'll just help them find the door because we'll be better for it. The ones that leave add nothing to us. When they leave, we don't miss a single beat. The church gets lighter because the anchors are gone. There's no harm done at all. It's only this, their lives and every man shall bear his own burden. But let's make sure that our hands are clean, that those that are weak in the faith, we exhort to be strong in the faith. Who is on the Lord's side is what Moses said. What I've said to you today from these different passages of Scripture and much more could be said, where is your tent? Are you pitching it towards Sodom? Or, are you like, or, or do you want to be like David? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. You want to be like David? How amiable are thy tabernacles, right. O Lord of hosts. Let's pitch our tent toward the Lord Jesus Christ and sell out for him. Yes. Brethren, and may God have mercy upon us and keep us from that evil heart of unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.